for our audience and those of us listening, you know that in many big companies, your manager can stop you from moving or getting promoted, right? They hold the power of the pen. And so I went to my then manager and I said, hey, Nancy and Bob and Lucy and all these people have been saying I should apply for this job. I'm excited. I'd like to apply for it. This is what he said to me. He said to me, Mita, you have two young kids at home. You can't do that job. That job requires a lot of travel. You need to focus on your kids. That's not the job for you. And this individual blocked me and took my name off the slate, blocked me from pursuing that job, which in large corporations happens. Yep. And I was so stunned. You know what I wish I had said to him, Nancy? I wish I had said, who gave you permission to slow down my career? Again, who gave you permission to slow down my career? You are listening to Concrete Pastures Podcast. I am Nancy Mulemwasisi. Thank you so much for tuning in today. For anyone who is new on our platform, this is a space that allows myself and others to share our stories as we deconstruct the world's view of an immigrant status. We unlike the joys, the laughs, and the bravery that being a dreamer brings. So subscribe, like, share, and stay a while as we dive into today's episode. We have an incredible woman. I admire so much. She is known for crafting brands with purpose, inclusion champion, podcaster, storytelling is her superpower. She's here today to share her incredible book, game-changing book titled Reimagining Inclusion, Debanking 13 Myths to Transform Your Workplace. It's out today on Amazon. Do yourself a favor, buy one for yourself and for someone else. Let's meet our guest. Mita Malik is a corporate change maker with a track record of transforming businesses. She has had an extensive career as a marketer in the beauty and consumer product goods space, being a fierce advocate of including and representing black and brown communities. Her passion of inclusion led her to become the chief diversity officer building end-to-end inclusion ecosystems across big and small organizations. She is the LinkedIn top voice, a contributor for Harvard Business Review, Adweek, Entrepreneur, and Fast Company. Meta has been featured in the New York Times, the Washington Post, Time Magazine, Forbes, Essence, Cosmopolitan Magazine, and Business Insider. She was also featured in a documentary created by Sodali O'Brien Productions for CBS News entitled Women in the Workplace and the Unfinished Fight for Equality. Welcome, Mita. How are you? Thank you so much for having me, Nancy. This has been a long time in the making. I appreciate it. Oh my God. I am so excited to have you on. As always, I mean, before we get dive into your amazing book, that is launching today. So excited. Oh my God, congratulations on that, by the way. So for starters, we just want to give our viewers a little bit about you to take us back to who Mita is before today. I'll start at the very beginning, Nancy, which is I'm the proud daughter of Indian immigrant parents. I was born and raised in the States with my younger brother. And growing up, 
It was not cool to be Indian. I was the funny looking, dark skinned girl with the long, funny looking braid whose parents spoke funny English until it wasn't funny anymore. I was bullied a lot, both verbally and physically by my peers. They let me know every single day that I did not belong in that community. And I didn't grow up in an Instagram era. And so I didn't see myself reflected in products and services. And so I was both painfully shy and introverted. I spent a lot of, lot of my childhood reading and writing. Mm. And I always wondered, Nancy, like who holds the power of the pen? Who makes decisions on who shows up and screen? And who's on the cereal box? And whose image is on a billboard that you drive by? And so from a young age, I was just really passionate about storytelling and telling stories from different perspectives and really shedding light on the stories we don't hear. And so that has just been a driving force my entire life as I entered my career in corporate America. And now I'm, I'm here with you today. Oh my God, it's such an honor to have you, honestly. I know when we spoke, we spoke about a number of things because uh, you also have your own podcast uh, with yes. your co-host, which is Prown Table Podcast. For anybody, it's amazing. It's enlightening. And uh, for a lot of the topics that you guys cover, I feel like you guys you know, are talking to me because yes. I'm in the corporate space. A lot of things have affected me mm -hmm. and I've I couldn't speak out on a lot of those things because I'm afraid my job is going to be jeopardized yeah. and I don't know how the, my bosses are going to react if I say something. I know you are a mom. I just want to bring, because this has affected me a lot and there's a number of people that has uh, this issue has affected them. How has parenting or being a mother affected your career? I never anticipated Nancy, that corporate America would view me differently when I became a mother. I was naive about it. I knew I wanted to, at the end of my life, say I had been a great mother, great leader, great friend, great sister, great wife, great partner, great cousin, all the ways in which we show up in this world, right? Mm -hmm. I never thought that I would be penalized for becoming a mother and the, the cost, the toll I would pay. And it was from the moment that I announced that I was pregnant until this very day, all the different ways in which it showed up. And I talk about in my new book, Reimagined Inclusion, Debunking 13 Myths to Transform Your Workplace, I talk about the motherhood penalty and the fatherhood premium. And so it is statistically shown in research that when men, like my husband, for every child he has, he earns more, he is seen as more stable, more committed, more ambitious, he needs to provide and earn from his, for his family. And me, I'm a disheveled mess. I'm a disheveled mess. That is how I have often been viewed in my career. I'm less committed, I'm less stable, I'm distracted. The questions about, how was your vacation? No, it was, it was leave, it was parental leave. If you're working, who's watching your kids? Are you having some a stranger? You're having a nanny raise your children? Don't you wanna go part-time? Don't you miss your babies? Why are you being so ambitious? Why are you so focused on the promotion? Your kids need you right now, that promotion will wait. So it's the, as Michelle Obama said in her book tour, Becoming, it's the everyday paper cuts, right? It's like every day, the paper cuts, the comments, either mm -hmm. the intentional or unintentional that starts to chip away at you. But the motherhood penalty is, is very real. It's very real. 
Uh, to be honest with you, there's a lot of us women that are feeling it because I had actually one of my colleagues ask me if I wanted to move up. But based on the receiving end of what I'm receiving, being that I'm a single mother, my mm -hmm. son is constantly sick. I even feel myself, I'm like, how am I even going to supposed to move up? Because every time you, you mentioned distracted, it feels like I'm distracted because I have to take care of my son. Mm. Like there's no way for us to balance the two together that you are able to take care of your children at the same time also continue to move up the ladder if you want to and continue to be ambitious and not be viewed as uh, you are a distraction or passed by by promotions mm -hmm. for people mm -hmm. who are still, you know, want to move up the ladder. Like I really had to readjust my, yes. my, my career and assess how I'm going to be viewed and it's how I'm being viewed or other women are being viewed as well yes. um, in the corporate space. Like what advice would you give uh, for a lot of women that are going through this challenge? The biggest piece of advice I can give you, which I'm trying to practice is showing kindness to yourself mm. and having self-compassion because there are days where I have shown up for my job and I haven't shown up for my kids. There are days where I show up for my kids and I don't show up for my job. So it cannot be a check and balance that every single day you're like, oh, I feel really crappy about this because it's, I want to Nancy think about it at the end of my life. Did I try to do all the things I wanted to as well to the best of my ability rather than trying to think there's work-life balance. It's a joke. It's work-life integration. There's no balance. And, you know, I just want to remove that from my vocabulary. It's integration yeah. and the how you think about you want to balance all the things you want to do well from a day to day, a week to week, month to month, year to year basis. And so having kindness and self-compassion is key and having people who are, as I talk about in Reimagine Inclusion, career sponsors, finding people who are advocating for your career and believing in you and helping you think about, I wish I had had, I mean, I've had, I've had later in my career, a lot of career sponsors, but early on, no one ever sat me down to say, okay, Mita, if you want to be a chief marketing officer, here are the six assignments you need to get to director. And then here's what you need to get to do to VP. I was sort of just muddling my way through taking this assignment, but no one ever coached me and guided me in that way. And so my advice is kindness and compassion for yourself, but also ask for help when it comes to your career, ask for help at work to think about not just the short-term assignment, but what else do you need to do to be growing as a leader? What other assignments do you need to take? Oh, so I want to dive into your amazing book. What got you to write your book? My book has been in the making since I was born. My mother reminds me that when I could pick up a crayon, I started writing, I wanted to write. I had left undergrad and had three novels that were unpublished. Over the years, I tried to write, didn't have a lot of traction. Ended up going to graduate school because I thought, well, I'm, I can't be a writer and pay my bills. It's really hard, right? So I ended up getting an MBA in marketing, storytelling. I then ended up writing another nonfiction proposal, which went nowhere. I left graduate school a few years later. I wrote a fourth fiction novel, went nowhere. And then I buried the dream of writing. And there's a famous quote where they say, you bury the seed, you may have buried it, but it's just growing. 
it's waiting to come out of the ground when the time is right. And so I share all this with everyone listening that I'm not an overnight success. You might look at me and see, wow, look at all the success she's had. No, it's been so many years in the making, so many rejections that redirected me to this book, which is a culmination of all the journaling I've done. But Nancy, I do a specific type of journaling, which is career journaling. So over the years, I've written down the highs and lows of my career, things I've been proud of, things I've struggled with, feedback I've gotten, things that that have hurt and harmed me. And I decided to write this book because there's a lot of great books on leadership and inclusion right now, but I wanted to say the quiet parts out loud. What holds us back from making meaningful progress in our workplaces and going back through my journals to say, yeah, these are the 13 things that I remember hearing in my career that I want really to interrogate and for people to just realize these are not true myths. They're not true. And once you can sort of unlearn that, you can start to do the work that's needed. Do you mind sharing some of the, I know it's 13 of them, the myths, but do you mind sharing even like five with us? Yes. We want people to read the book. I already have it (laughs) pre-ordered. Let us, let me share this one. You might find this one interesting, Nancy. Myth four, I'm all for diverse talent as long as they're good. I'm all for diverse talent as long as they're good. So every every myth and people ask why 13, it's my lucky number. Let's not overcomplicate it. My lucky number, I picked 13. Every myth is a pretty provocative title. Something that has been said somewhere in corporate America. I'm sure many places where we've heard this. I open with the powerful story. I debunk the myth and I really leave tools for leaders to show up and do better and be better. And here's what, what I'll ask Nancy, you and the audience to think about. Would we ever say I'm all for non-diverse talent as long as they're good? Have we ever heard that? You know, have we ever heard, oh, you're a non-diversity hire, right? Have we, so it's interesting to think about Why, as a leader, do you think you're lowering the bar when you are hiring someone who doesn't look like you, act like you, think like you, or is not from your same community? And one of the questions I want to pose to anyone listening right now, and we do this quick exercise, is, Nancy, you're the CEO, and I I was hired, the first woman of color, to work on your exec team. Mm -hmm. And you have asked me to lead a troubled business. Mm -hmm. And for all the reasons we don't need to get into, it doesn't work for me or the company. I move on. Are you more or less likely to hire another woman of color based on your experience with me? Now let's do the same scenario. It's a white man. You hire a white man to join your executive team, lead a troubled part of the business for all the reasons didn't work out for the company or for him, he moves on. Are you more or less likely to hire a white man again? And so I ask people to just, you know, a lot of what I do in Reimagine Inclusion is just ask people open-ended questions, coach individuals through these scenarios. Because if I am the lonely only, if I am the only woman of color you have ever appointed to a position, there is an unimaginable amount of pressure on me and pressure for the women who follow me. And so if you, based on that one experience, decide, right, that you know all women of color and women of color talent, and that makes you less reluctant, that to hire a woman of color again, that's what you need to really be interrogating. Because I believe 
based on my experience, that scenario would not be true if we were talking about if the executive was a white man. Uh, but Mita, you bring up a really good point. This is what happens in our corporate space. Yes. That they make the decisions based on who, uh, whoever is first. So let's say the same example that you gave, I'm the yeah. only black person in uh, African person hired in our community, which is actually true, <laughs> in our community. Based on how I perform, it determines they're going to hire the second person or not. How do, I, how do we avoid that? How do leaders avoid that? that by, hiring, by hiring, developing, and promoting more Black women. That's it, full stop. Because what happens is when we have limited exposure to any community, we start to stereotype. It's how our brains work, right? Mm -hmm. And so you need to have access to a diverse pipeline, a diverse network. Our journey to be inclusive leaders is we have to continue to build relationships with people who don't have our lived experience. That's the only way we will develop and grow as leaders. And so in any of those situations, it happens because you have limited or no exposure. You know, I talk a lot about in this myth, the pipe, oh, uh, it's a pipeline issue. Mm -hmm. Canada, there's pipeline. So, okay, is it a pipeline issue? Or did you create the pipeline issue? Or do you just not know enough talent in the marketplace? Based on your limited network, you think it's a pipeline issue. So I ask people to, to interrogate that. Uh, one of the other myths that I know you'll really enjoy is, of course, we support women. We just extended maternity leave. <sighs> that one is a touch. It, it, it's touchy for me. For, for a lot of women, let me not even say me. It's it, for a lot of women because a lot of our performance is based on that. Like mm -hmm. I remember going on leave and coming back, not getting the rating that I expected to get. Mm -hmm. And that affected my bonus. Mm -hmm. And I was in an organization where your bonus was at the end of the year. Yes. yes. And, um, I got my review when I came back. I haven't worked for three months, almost four months. Oh my gosh. And then I'm coming to be given a review and I'm like, okay, based on what? Mm -hmm. Or based on whatever you did before you left. Yes. yes. But I left my assistant running the branch. Does that, does that affect me or what's going on? Yeah. Well, in this myth, I debunk the fact that, you know, not creating an inclusive culture for women doesn't mean you're creating an inclusive culture for mothers. Not all women will become mothers. So there's that piece. Also, the world of work for women can't change without men. So we need to call it parental leave. And oh, by the way, providing a policy as a check the box, that's not enough. And one of the things, your story is my story is our stories. Yes. After having my daughter, I came back to a company where I had taken, you know, the allotted amount of time. It was six months I took off. Same conversation. Oh, I got the lowest rating I could get. And do you know what they told me? The business fell off the cliff during the summer. I said, I didn't work for six months. I don't understand how I'm being penalized. So one of the things I ask people to watch out for is many companies will rank performance on a forced belt curve. So are you giving a low rating to all the people who are out on leave? Because there's a recency effect. Haven't seen Nancy, haven't seen Mita, don't know what they're working on. Give them, it's a scale of one to five, five being the best, one being the, give them the ones and the twos. Yeah. 
And so one of the things I would argue, and I argue in this book, is that it is your job as a leader to check in with people before they're going out on leave. So Nancy's going out on leave. My job is to check in with her and say, okay, I know you're going to be going on leave next week or the week after. I want to sit down and talk to you about your performance here to date. Right? So, so give the feedback, talk about what's been accomplished. And so when you come back from leave, you're not being penalized and you're not surprised because you've had a really really clear discussion on where you stand. And then you can go back to that and say, Mita, you just gave me the lowest possible rating, but this is the conversation we had three months ago. I have it and this is what well, you said I was on track, meeting all my metrics. So these two things don't match. Oh, no, that's really good. I guess touching base with whoever is going on leave as leaders instead of just letting them go. Like, regardless of whatever leave, whether it's leave of absence, whatever it is, we have to make sure that we connect yeah. with the employee. Being an immigrant can be hard. Having been away from my home country for over 20 years has allowed me to experience these hardships firsthand. Throughout my journey, I've had a lot of challenges that were hard to bear juggling adjustment to a new country, obtaining my immigration papers, getting married, having children, establishing my career, and finding time for myself. Even though I've always had faith, I also relied on therapy, which gave me the tools to cope with the issues life brought me. My fellow dreamers, Let's remove the stigma around therapy and normalize seeking help with today's sponsor, BetterHelp. BetterHelp offers licensed therapists who are trained to listen and help you. Go to betterhelp.com slash pastures for 10% off your first month of therapy with BetterHelp and get matched with a therapist who will listen and help in as little as 48 hours. Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the things I know you're passionate about as well is that how this, the stereotype of women and motherhood in the workplace, because mm -hmm. no matter where you were raised in the world, we all have cultural stereotypes informed by our upbringing, informed by film and media. And so for many of us, we have expectations on how women, women's roles in society. Yeah. And so all of a sudden, when women are in the workplace like myself and we become mothers, hmm, I'm being asked questions, likely a man who's a father working with me is not being asked. And let me give you an example. I had come back from leave again. I was up for promotion and I had a number of career sponsors, Nancy, in the company say, this is the job for you. It's yeah. the promotion. We've talked to the hiring manager. Go talk to your manager, current manager. Go apply for the job. This is your next role. Now, for our audience and those of us listening, you know that in many big companies, your manager can stop you from moving or getting promoted, right? They hold the power of the pen. And so I went to my then manager and I said, hey, Nancy and Bob and Lucy and all these people have been saying, I should apply for this job. I'm excited, I'd like to apply for it. This is what he said to me. He said to me, Mita, you have two young kids at home. You can't do that job. That job requires a lot of travel. You need to focus on your kids. That's not the job for you. And this individual blocked me and took my name off the slate, blocked me from pursuing that job, which in large corporations happens. Yep. And I was so stunned. You know what I wish I had said to him, Nancy? I wish I had said, who gave you permission to slow down my career? Again, 
who gave you permission to slow down my career? And I wish I had had that courage to say that years ago. Because we can't, you can't make decisions based on what you think you know about people. You have to ask them what their career wishes are and how you can help support them. And so I really hope people think about that question. Who gave you permission to slow down my career? How dare I slow down Nancy's career? Because I think she's a single mother or she does this or that or whatever she's revealed to me or I know about her. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. How dare, how dare I do that? How dare I do that? That's really powerful. Um, Do not allow anyone to take away your power and don't give permission to anyone to take away that ambition that you you have. I think finding different ways on how to respond to that. uh, Really, really powerful. I like that. I really do. Anything else? What's the third one? Okay, third one. This one's getting a lot of buzz. I'm going to be interested to hear what you say. This myth is, why are you asking for a raise? You and your husband make more than enough money. Why are you asking for a raise? You and your husband make more than enough money. Another true story. So in this myth, I talk about our cultural relationship with money. I talk about the fact that I was raised not to talk about money. You talk about where you live, what you drove, where you went on vacation. It was considered rude, it was considered impolite. And so then I'm in the workforce, negotiate, ask for more. You're like, how do I do this? You're not supposed to talk about money. But in the years since then, I have really worked hard to learn how to negotiate, how to show up in conversations about compensation. I've worked really hard. And so one of the myths that is out there is that white women and women of color don't negotiate. And actually, oftentimes we do negotiate. And when we do negotiate, we're gaslit, minimized, and dismissed. And so in this, again, true story, I had gone to a former manager. I knew that people had been externally being hired, had been promoted within the team. I knew that I was being underpaid. I did the research. I had my points on the board. I went during performance review time and with a smile, I said, when you have a moment, would you please take a look at my compensation and where it sits on the team, right? This is after I got a really good review. Yes. And that was the individual's response. Why are you asking for a raise? You and your husband make more than enough money because he had found out what my husband did for a living. And again, I wish I had had the courage to say, what does my husband's job have anything to do with the value I bring to the company? But Nancy, these are the things that are happening quietly behind the scenes. There will be comments like, meet as a single mother, she's the primary breadwinner, you don't need to give her a retention bonus, she's not going anywhere. Meet is getting a 5% increase, make that 2%, her husband Jim is in sales and he's killing it. Did you see that Mita wears a Birkin bag to work every day? She's not here for this job. You can, you don't need to give her that big of a bonus. And so these are the ways in which we judge women on what we think their home life is, what role they play in their families, what they're wearing to work and decide to pay them less. And I recently was talking to a girlfriend about this story. I was up for a pay review, Nancy, years ago, and I was going to a leadership offsite. And I'll never forget, I like my jewelry. I like nice jewelry. I did not wear any of my nice jewelry. And my husband said, well, why aren't you wearing your your wedding ring to the offsite? And I said, I don't want them to have any reason to pay me less. And my girlfriend said to me, yep, you you keep the logo bags at home, 
keep the nice stuff at home. And I mean, this is a, I mean, exhausting mental games that you have to pay. Like I say, uh, you have to play. I, like I say, I don't have the privilege to wear a hoodie to work, but then show up in a Chanel jacket. Oh, mm mm-mm. She makes enough money. But you, 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 I don't even know if that was a gift from a friend, from a It husband. doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Because you know what? If my husband shows up in a Gucci shoe, in a Gucci suit, yeah. in nice shoes, in uh, an expensive Rolex on, he's attracting money, right? No yeah. one's saying to him, oh, because you wear Rolex, we're going to pay you less. Yeah. And so I really want leaders to think about you know, what is it that triggers me if Nancy comes and asks for her her compensation to be reviewed? Why is that triggering? Why do I think oh, she should be grateful? I pay her enough. Why is she asking for more? Versus, let's say, I'm going to pick on Jim. I don't know a Jim, but a Jim asks. Yes. Me, hey, am I triggered in the same way? Or I'm like, oh, good for him for asking. Oh, yeah, he just had a second kid. So should really review his pay. I'm going to pause, Nancy. Did I stump you? You did. You definitely (laughs) did. Because for a lot of women, I think we've always had a hard time, especially in my African community, we have a hard time asking for raises, speaking up in terms of, we feel, people have made us feel like they're doing us a favor. Say that part again. Yes. People have made us feel like they're doing us a favor. (laughs) Meanwhile, we deserve it. And I think that's where the challenge comes in as, okay, we actually start to embrace that, oh, yes, they're doing me a favor. Let me ask for, let me go correct. How, like, you strategize on how to even go about it. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you earned it. You don't deserve it. You deserve it and you earned it. But here's the thing I think that's so, I've been trying to unpack as the proud daughter of Indian immigrant parents is that this idea of you should be thankful, you should be grateful because my parents came to this country not knowing anybody. My dad left a family of 10 siblings, my mom a family of nine. They were in survival mode. And so for them, it was that, yeah, like we're grateful be, to be here. We're grateful for getting a paycheck. You know, my dad used to say, keep your head down, work hard, stay out of trouble and you'll be recognized. You you didn't want to be a target. You wanted to almost make yourself invisible and it was trust the system. And so a lot of these things are intergenerational trauma that's passed down that I found that I'm absorbing, like what you say deeply resonates with me. I should be grateful. I should be thankful. I should trust the system. I shouldn't ask for more. Oh, they're, they're paying me enough. And it's like, no, they're not paying you enough and you're worth more. And you're worth more than that. What are your parents saying about your book? Oh my God. I wish my dad was still here. Um, I lost him really suddenly in 2017. And so, um, thank you. And my dad was, was loved reading a huge reader. So, um, I know he's because of his blessings. I know he's looking down on me. Um, my mom is just super thrilled and excited and said, you wanted to write a book since you were a child. And so I certainly, you know, stand on the shoulders of my ancestors. I think I, in our prior conversation, I had said to you that both my grandmothers were child brides. My dad's mother was married when she was 12 years old. My mother's mother was, I will say, married off, not married, married off when she was 10 years old. Men in their 20s, uh, they had really large families and were remarkable women. And so 
you know, I'm I'm living proof, Nancy, of what gender progress looks like in just less than three generations. Like this is what it looks like. Amazing, amazing, and I'm I'm so proud of your work. True. Oh, thank you. I, I am because I, I I follow what you do from your show roundtable podcast. It's really truly amazing, and it's needed. We need you guys' voices. The topics that you guys cover really resonate with me a lot, and I know they resonate with a lot of your listeners. I'm sure it's going to resonate with the Concrete Pastures family as well. From that, what's the fourth one for us to cover? Hmm. Another myth. Okay. Another one I talk about, it's time to have some courageous conversations on race. Let's ask our employees of color to lead them. It's time to have some courageous conversations on race. Let's ask our employees of color to lead them. Nancy, I can't wait for you to read this book. I can just feel your energy through the screen. Yeah. I mean, I I'm still in some tea. If you love the Brown Table Talk podcast, you're going to love this book. Let me just say that. No, I really love it. I I really love it. Just from the the, the four minutes that you just sharing (laughs) and from the, uh, from the time, the moment we spoke, you and I connected, I'm like, listen, I love the the energy you guys give on Brown Table. I'm like, yes, that's exactly what I went through. Yes. I, I, so wow okay (laughs) yeah and what i really talk about in that book is our employee resource groups are not our diversity equity and inclusion strategy ergs are important they're important for community and conversation but you cannot continue to burden your black and brown employees individuals from historically marginalized communities to do the work and you know i i've grown up in this country was born and raised in the u.s I grew up from the moment I was born having courageous conversations on race. There was no choice in that for me. And so what I think about in the workplace is when we talk about courageous conversations on race, who is actually the person who's showing the courage, right? It's usually the person who's from a historically marginalized group who's being put on the spot. You know, let's talk about the real dynamics of power and privilege in work. If I'm the CEO inviting you to come speak about your experience as a woman of color, it's it's not really an invitation. You likely in that role don't have an opportunity to say no because of the power dynamics. And so why do we continue to put pain on display in our workplaces? Another shooting of an un- unarmed black American. Oh, let's gather our black employee resource group, ask them how they're feeling. Another anti-Asian hate crime, let's gather. American employee research group. And so, but why, why do we do that? And so what I really ask people to think about is, you know, storytelling, as you can tell, I'm so passionate about storytelling. It's one of the oldest forms of how we communicate as humans. And at what cost do you need to go to a primary source to hear that story, Mm. right? I run up to the only black colleague at work. What did you think about what happened in the news last night? And what you don't understand is that First of all, it's not appropriate if you don't know that person. But second, you are like re-traumatizing that person. Yeah, I was going to say that. there's generational trauma, right? You're re-traumatizing that person. And so that's why Google is your best friend. There's so much content out there right now. If you really, like I say, I'm on an ally to be a journey to the Black community, only my Black friends and colleagues can tell you if I'm an ally. I can't say that. Only, Only they can tell you. But it's my job to educate myself. It's not my job unless I have really safe relationships, really trusted, meaningful relationships with Black friends and colleagues that I can have these conversations with. But 
It's my job to educate myself. It's not their job to educate me. Well, no, well said, really well said. Uh, on top of that, you've been in a lot of spaces. And I heard you share something when you went to London, you did a presentation. <laughs> Out of there, you have Nancy, you know all my stories. You know all my stories, Nancy. <laughs> Nancy's taking notes on my stories. I I'm love a it. fan. I'm a fan. <laughs> All right. <laughs> I, I, I'm a sponge of life. So I like to learn from people who've done it uh, well. And uh, I'm just here to learn. So you you finish your presentation and someone, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, approaches you. Uh, instead of talking about the presentation, truly, they're talking about how well you speak English. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> For a lot of us uh, immigrants, and I'm sure your mom can tell you, <laughs> so your parents. Yes. When we come here, I come from an English-speaking country. A lot of people are surprised that I speak English. And it was, used to catch me really back as to why are they surprised. How were you able to take that in? And uh, what was your response to that? My response was, I, I, I believe I said something like, yeah, the presentation was amazing. I was so stunned. Here's the thing I have to say, Nancy. I'm so tired of standing up for myself. I'm tired. I wish someone in that circle of leaders had said something. Why are you commenting on her English? How does that even have any benefit? Usually I try to diffuse something with a joke. My family doesn't think I'm funny, but I think I'm funny. I might do something with humor because otherwise it's so awful because that person's such a senior leader and was the only thing that he, the individual could focus on was that he was floored that I spoke English so well and not the contents of the presentation. And so this is why we all need to be looking out for each other in our workplaces and standing up for each other. And I also ask leaders to think about this. It's like, you know, we all have an accent. It's through the ear in which you hear it through. You have an accent, I have an accent. We all have accents. It's just the, it's lens in which you're hearing it through that you think, okay, okay. You being in the US, you have an accent. If I go to another country, I have an accent. We all have accents, right? And so it is the bias of like, why are you so surprised that I speak English so well? Like, what is it about me physically or how I look or how I was speaking that just stunned you? Yeah. No, it, it definitely catches every like a lot of our guests here that have shared on how shocking it is that someone is surprised that you speak English. And it's been going on. So I just wanted to share because I mean you you grew up here in yeah. America. And I'm just like, she also gets it. But well, because it, it's the bias of, you know, here's the thing. When I enter a room, when I show up on screen, my brownness is the first thing you see. And so within a split second, a few seconds, you'll make judgments on me. Mm -hmm. Well, she must not be American. She must not have been born and raised here. Mm -hmm. She has an unusual name, you know, all the things that might run through our heads. And so what I say to people is having bias is common and everyone has it. And so if you have that thought in your head, suspend it before you speak, interrogate it. Okay, why am I wondering? Or that she speaks English so well? Other thing I get is, how did you get rid of your accent? And I get that a lot too. How did you get rid of your accent? And I say, well, I was born and raised here, like very confused. What do you mean accent? I don't even understand what that means. What accent are you talking about? Because I do have an accent. We all have accents. Yeah. 
question? Oof. Reimagine inclusion, reembarking 13 myths to transform your workplace. Who is your target? As I mean, oof, people can get a hint right now, but who is your target audience for this book? My target is for anyone who wants to make progress in their workplace. It is not only for the CEO, it's also for the individual contributor. I think too often we're waiting for the CEO to send a note, the CEO is going to say something. And it's like, no, we all own a piece of our workplace. We spend too much time there. And so with Reimagined Inclusion, debunking 13 myths to transform your workplace, I really hope that people read the book and there's one or two or three things they think about that they're going to show up tomorrow differently at work. Imagine, Nancy, every single one of us, if we said, okay, we're going to change one way positively that we're going to show up at work tomorrow, how different our workplaces would be. We all worked on like one or two things. It yeah. would be amazing. No, it, it's it's definitely um, going to change the way we, um, we think, how we treat our, our employees for those of us that are leaders, how we just go about um, dealing with certain situations. Um, I think... I would encourage everybody to pick up this book. Again, like I said, I already pre-ordered my book. Uh, December, actually, I did. <laughs> and um, I can't wait to have it in my hand. First edition. Congratulations. How can people get the book? Well, go to Amazon. It's available for order right now or independent bookstore as well. But it's out. So I can't wait for you all to read it and share your feedback. You could find me on LinkedIn or Instagram. And I look forward to connecting with you online. Yes. No, I'll have all your social media handles and people can directly you know, share their comments, what they think of this episode, and also just give you feedback overall on what they think about the book as well. You've done so much. You have, have accomplished so much in your lifetime to this point. Have you found your perfect pastures? I have because there is no success without gratitude. Mm. There's no success without gratitude. So I really try to instill that in myself and my children. Right? It doesn't mean that I'm not hustling hard for the things I want, but I'm also really grateful and happy with the things I have and I've achieved. And that's, I believe, the only way you can really measure success. Thank you for that. Mita, this has been such an honor. I've been looking forward to us connecting and having this conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you, Nancy. Time. And thank you for this amazing oh. platform and everything you're doing. Honestly, thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate you. Thank you. That's it for this episode. Thank you again for lending us your ears. It's truly an honor to save each and every dreamer. You can continue to support us by liking, sharing, and following us on our social media pages. The links are all in the show notes. We have so many exciting projects and ventures in store for you. Until next time, keep dreaming. Concrete Pasture